0: Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. Our website, christianquestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan.
1: Albert Einstein once said, Look deep into nature, and then you will understand everything better. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And you might say that ours is a long-term approach, as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years.
2: And I'm Jonathan, and that long-term, different perspective has its basis in three things— Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 977th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years.
1: That's right, and we figured it's time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are, and we thank you all for joining us today, this is a contact-friendly format and we welcome your thoughts uh, by way of email website messages facebook our chat board and any other way you can think of to uh, get get in contact with us so let's get started jonathan what is the subject matter for today
2: rick our question is does america show us the nature of god and our theme text is found in romans chapter 1 verse 20 for since the creation of the world His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse.
1: So it's 241 years ago tomorrow that the course of world history changed. For on July 4th, 1776, the 13 colonies adopted the Declaration of Independence and proclaimed themselves to be the United States of America. Since then, these United States have risen to become a world power and have been the source of many amazing world innovations. One innovation that seems to never be talked about or even noticed is this country's profound contribution to recognizing, appreciating, and preserving the wonders of the natural landscape. Nature. It covers the world with its intricate complexity, its unfathomable (coughs) beauty, and its breathtaking majesty. For most of us, our park system doesn't feel like an innovation. Rather, it feels like a common, scarcely noticed commodity. Like, yeah, okay, we have national parks, that's cool. Folks, today, We stop for a moment, and we're going to ask, how did these national parks come to be? What was the motivation for their existence? And most importantly, what does all of this have to do with Almighty God? And, Jonathan, that's an interesting question to ask about the national park system. So we have a very special guest in with us to do that. Um, And let me just introduce him quickly before we make another quick announcement. We have with us a special guest. Tom Gilbert is with us. Good evening, Tom. How are you?
3: I'm fine, Rick. Good to be with you.
1: And, uh, Tom, we're going to get a little bit of background on you and why you're here for this particular subject in one minute. But, Jonathan, first, we have got... A Christian questions update folks whether you're listening to Christian questions for the first time or you've been a longtime listener we have something new that we think will be really exciting for you our media production team has helped us create a video to tell the history of how this program began leading up to where we are today a quickly growing weekly podcast with new listeners all over the world it's been incredible to see our online listenership grow from hundreds each week to now thousands all because of God's direction and blessing coupled with our efforts and desire to bring you, our valued listeners, deep discussions from several different angles each and every week. And you
2: can see this new video, CQ, How It All Began, on the right sidebar of our website, christianquestions.com. If you're on your mobile phone, It will be at the bottom of the video section due to the mobile formatting.
1: Okay, so brand new video, How CQ, how it all began. We'd love for you to check it out, and we'd love for you to tell us what you think. It gives you the history of how Christian Questions got to where we are today. So aside from that, let's get down to focus. Tom Gilbert is with us. uh, And Tom, we're, we're talking about national parks. We're talking about godliness. So why you what what is there about this these these two subjects that that brings you into this mix well
3: a couple of things rick Uh, one um i spent most of my career working for the national park service uh i had the particular area i worked on was called the national trail system so many listeners may be familiar with the Appalachian Trail. I was put in charge of planning and developing other trails similar to the Appalachian Trail in other parts of the country. That's one thing that brings me here, but the second part is my interest in God's plan and God as the creator of our world.
1: Okay, and so you you are a Christian. You have been a Christian for how long?
3: Uh 45 years. Okay.
1: Long well, time. And, and you, you, serve, you serve as a minister in your local Christian uh, gathering, is that correct?
3: Yes, yes. Uh, the Southern Wisconsin Bible Students Church, I'm a pastor there.
1: Okay, so you've got a lot of biblical background, and you've got a lot of natural background. So if we're going to talk about nas- national parks... And godliness. I don't know anybody better than Tom Gilbert to uh, walk us through this particular subject. So let's get started. Let's start going down this road right here right now. Uh, so first, Tom, some quick background on the profound influence of nature upon thousands of years of history. We're not going to talk about national parks yet, but, but, but just human history. Give us just a, some background on, on the, the Christian age and nature and, and, the, and the correlation.
3: Well, Rick, for centuries and ages, mankind has been in awe of the natural world around them when they have taken the time to notice the small intricacies of living things, as well as the majestic scenery of large landscapes.
1: Okay, and let's go to a scripture on that. Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens are telling
2: of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge there is no speech nor are there words their voice is not heard their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterance to the end of the world
1: okay tom so now back to history with that with that scripture in mind giving us a sense of the heavens you know just sort of shouting out the glory of god and the firmament showing his handiwork. More on history, go ahead.
3: Sure, and what I'd like to share is some observations by by Christians down through the age. Let's start with Augustine of Hippo, commonly known as Saint Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 AD. And this is what he wrote. Some people, in order to discover God, read books. But there is a great book, the very appearance of created things. Look above you. Look below you, note it, read it. God, whom you want to discover, never wrote that book with ink. Instead, he set before your eyes the things that he made. Can you ask for a louder voice than that? Why, heaven and earth shout to you, God made me. (laughs) And then it goes right along with that scripture. The, The creation itself shouts that they were created. And Hugh of St. Victor, a Saxon theologian who lived from uh, 1096 to 1141 and became the head of the school of the Abbey of St. Victor in Paris, wrote, the whole visible world is a book written by the finger of God. And a more well-known reformer, Martin Luther, said, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars.
1: So we've got some pretty old history there that's putting nature and God exactly together. So so Tom, for you, what got you hooked on nature uh, and, and the work that you would eventually do? Let's get a little bit of, we've gotten some ancient history, let's get some more modern history of Tom himself.
3: Well, I was fortunate to have parents that took the family camping whenever there was vacation time, and I grew to love the outdoors and nature. And On one of those trips, Uh, In 1962, when I was 12 years old, my parents took us out west. Uh, I grew up in Michigan, took us out west to visit many of the national parks, and I decided on that trip that I wanted to work for the National Park Service. And eventually, I found myself doing so. But in doing so, I got assigned out in Omaha, Nebraska, (laughs) an office out there. And I remember clearly my disappointment in the scenery of Nebraska, when my job moved there in 1981. Having grown up in Michigan with its extensive forests and many lakes and streams, I was disheartened by the relative lack of those things in Nebraska and the surrounding region. That is until, until I was assigned to work on establishing the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail following the route of their famous expedition. And I began to read the journals of Lewis and Clark.
1: So there's there's two defining moments that I see. One when you were 12 years old, like, okay, this is what I want to do. And then you're assigned to a job that's like, uh, I'm not so sure. But then you start reading these journals. So when you, what, what did you expect to, when, in, in going to reading those journals? And did you get what you expected?
3: Well, I honestly didn't know what to expect. Uh, but I was amazed when I started reading them. And there's a, a, quite a unique difference between the writings of C- William Clark and Meriwether Lewis. William Clark was rather pragmatic in his descriptions of what they did, what they encountered, what they saw. But Meriwether Lewis could wax poetic with enrapturing rapturing descriptions of the scenery and wildlife and plant life. And it was not until I was able to see the lands that they traversed, including Nebraska, through his eyes that I began to appreciate the beauty of the prairies and high plains and mountains through which they passed. Can I share a couple of examples from their journals?
1: Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh,
3: This is Meriwether Lewis on May 31st, 1805. They were traveling the Upper Missouri River through uh, north-central Montana, what is today north-central Montana. And this is what he wrote. The hills and river cliffs, which we pass today, exhibit a most romantic appearance. The bluffs of the river rise to the height of from two to 300 feet, and in most places, nearly perpendicular. They are formed of remarkable white sandstone, which is sufficiently soft to give way readily to the impression of water. In the course of time in descending those hills and plains, On either side of the river has trickled down the soft sand cliffs and worn it into a thousand grotesque figures which with the help of a little imagination and an oblique view at a distance are made to represent elegant ranges of lofty free stone buildings having their parapets well stocked with statuary columns of various sculpture both grooved and plain are also seen supporting long galleries in front of those buildings. As we passed on, it seemed as if those scenes of visionary enchantment would never have an end.
1: You're right, that's pretty poetic. Do another one.
3: (laughs) Yes, uh, a little further upriver, they encountered the Great Falls of the Missouri River. And this is what he wrote on June 13th. I had proceeded on about two miles when my ears were saluted with the agreeable sound of a fall of water, a roaring too tremendous to be mistaken for any cause, short of the great falls of the Missouri. I wished that I might be enabled to give to the enlightened world some just idea of this truly magnificent and sublimely grand object, which has, from the commencement of time, been concealed from the view of civilized man. Of course, Lewis and Clark and their men were experiencing these lands in near pristine condition. Mm-hmm. But much of beauty and wonder still remains today, despite human modifications to the landscape. And it's specifically for that purpose, Rick, that purpose of preserving unspoiled remnants of those landscapes that the United States began setting aside lands as national parks. The first national park set aside was Yellowstone in 1872. Others followed such as Mackinac Island National Park in 1875, Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks in 1890, Mount Rainier in 1899, Crater Lake in 1902, Glacier in 1910 and Rocky Mountain National Park in 1915. But there was no agency to take care of those places until the National Park Service was created in 1916, so last year marked the hundredth anniversary of the creation of the National Park Service.
1: So the service, and I had the privilege. Of, so, so the service was put in place much later to sort of backtrack and take care of the things that were being done.
3: Yes, up until that time, there's an interesting history that the U.S. Army was charged with caring for the uh, parks. And there uh, are great uh, stories about uh, Black Army cavalrymen who were known as Buffalo Soldiers uh, caring for Yosemite and many of the national parks. The the, uh, uh, groups known as the Buffalo Soldiers were frequently assigned to care for the national parks. Interesting.
1: All right, let's continue.
3: Yeah, the legislation creating the National Park Service said that the purpose of setting aside and managing these parks is to conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects and the wildlife they're in and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. And that's a challenging test. Open them for so. public use, but keep them unimpaired.
1: Yeah, there you go.
3: <laughs> so national parks open to the enjoyment of everyone was actually a totally new idea in the world. It was something that America introduced to the world and is frequently referred to as America's best idea.
1: Now that sounds odd, America's best idea. America's had a lot of ideas. So let's go a little bit further in, in, in figuring out this America's best idea. Go ahead.
3: Well, if, if you explore the stories and histories of those who worked to preserve them, and that's, that's the part that I always enjoy looking into with every park that I go to. How did this park come to be? Who worked for it and why?
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, We learned that they were motivated by their understanding what these places communicate to us about God, about the character and power of our creator. While today it is a popular notion that Christianity is opposed to conservation and environmental protection, the truth is that the national parks movement and the larger conservation and environmental movement was begun by people who were motivated by a desire to honor God or the Creator. Those who worked to preserve these special places found their inspiration in two revelations from God, two books of scripture, the Bible, and the natural creation in which we dwell. With the revelations it contains about the nature, the character, and the power of God, the Creator. God's written word reveals and points to the second book by way of the Apostle Paul.
1: So, so Jonathan, let's real quickly go to uh, Romans 1, 19 and 20, that scripture that Tom is referring to.
2: Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his external power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, So that they are
1: without excuse. And we'll develop that scripture as we go a little bit further, but uh, you know, nature really does deserve our respect, uh, as it really is one of God's masterpieces. And what we really need to do here is we really need to pay attention.
2: Absolutely. So going back, who would you say was primarily responsible for making God's second book come alive?
1: That's a good question. God's second book. How does it come alive?
0: If you disagree with some of Rick and Jonathan's viewpoints, no matter your beliefs, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com or through our app by searching for Christian Questions in your app store. Our producers are feeding us your awesome comments and questions every week, so keep them coming. In this next CQ chapter, we're going 3D. Three viewpoints. Christian, secular, and neutral.
1: So the whole idea of God's second book is really kind of inspiring when you think about it. How many people who look at and appreciate nature ever stop to think about its complex system of existence? We are in awe of the delicate beauty of a flower, and we are stunned by the power of a giant waterfall. But are we ever struck by the planning and foresight that put it all there? And when you think about this as God's second book, it really opens up, a whole different way of thinking about, about nature. And, and Tom, really, that's what, what motivated those who were, who put these national parks in place, was they understood this as God's second book. So, so continue the story of the national parks and how they uh, got to be.
3: Rick, when we think of national parks, we often think of John Muir. And he's, generally known and referred to as the father of our national park system. Not only for his campaign to uh, protect Yosemite Valley, but his continued campaign to have the parks cared for in a manner that protects their natural and scenic values. John Muir was born in Scotland in 1838, but in 1849 at age 11, his family emigrated to the United States and settled in Wisconsin, where I presently live. John loved to spend time in the the marshes and the meadows that were on their farm. His love of the natural world began there and heightened when he went to the University of Wisconsin to study botany. In America, the Muir family joined the Disciples of Christ congregation of the Restoration Movement began by Thomas and Alexander Campbell. John's father, Daniel, sometimes served as the minister of their local church. He had a belief that anything that distracted from Bible study was frivolous, and he required his children to memorize Scripture. Consequently, by an early age, John could recite more than half of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament from memory. Oh, man, that's crazy. Truly amazing. Wow. (laughs) His religious upbringing and his love of all things nature merged to result in rhapsodic praise and admiration for the creator of all things. John found the natural beauty of the Sierra Nevada mountains in California to be the grandest cathedrals in which to worship God.
1: So, so by, by your description of John Muir, you see the sense of great religiousness, great sense of awe for God. And that comes to fruition for his life's work in his awe for God as expressed through nature. That's really, really magnificent. And he was so instrumental in showing us how big God's second book really is. All right, go ahead, continue.
3: Reflecting on his uh, studies at the university, he wrote, Like everybody else, I was always fond of flowers, attracted by their external beauty and purity, But now my eyes were open to their inner beauty, all alike revealing the glorious traces of the thoughts of God and leading on and on into the infinite cosmos. In March of 1867, when he was 28, he had an accident that changed his perspective on life and the world around him. A tool that he was using slipped and struck him in the eye. He was confined to a darkened room for six weeks and wondered if he would ever again regain his sight. His sight eventually did return and the experience changed the way he saw his purpose in life. He later wrote, the affliction has driven me to the sweet fields. God has to nearly kill us sometimes to teach us lessons. And from that point on, he determined to be true to himself and follow his dream of exploration and study of plants. He began a wandering walk to Florida. (laughs) Once there, he caught a ship to Cuba and then to New York. Then he booked passage on a ship to San Francisco, arriving there in March of 1868. He headed for Yosemite Valley and spent the months of April, May and June there. The following year in 1869, he spent the summer shepherding sheep in Tuolumne Meadows in the high Sierra countries above Yosemite Valley. He began hiking and climbing and studying nature in the Sierras. When he left the high mountains at the end of the summer, he descended into Yosemite Valley. It was, Muir wrote, by far the grandest of all the special temples of nature I was ever permitted to enter as he explored the valley and surrounding area, he later recorded, I drifted from rock to rock, from grove to grove. When I discovered a new plant, I sat down beside it for a minute or a day to make its acquaintance and hear what it had to tell. I asked the boulders I met, whence they came and whither they were going.
1: I tell you, it sounds like John Muir and David, the psalmist, would have had an instant bond. They had this sense of, of, of the, the presence of nature. And, and Jonathan and, and Tom, let's pause here for a moment and attempt to read God's second book in a different way, through some music. Let's try and combine the word pictures that Tom is giving us with some music written for the same purpose. We're going to be going through the, the, the American anthem, America the Beautiful. And Jonathan, give us just a little bit of a background on that particular anthem.
2: The lyrics were written by Catherine Lee Bates and the music composed by church organist and choir master Samuel A. Ward. The poem was initially published in 1895, the Congregationalist, to commemorate the 4th of July. It quickly caught the public's fancy. Amended versions were published in 1904 and 1913. Ward had originally written the music Materna from the 19th century hymn, "O Mother, Dear Jerusalem, in 1882. Ward's music combined with Bates' poem was first published in 1910 and titled America the Beautiful.
1: And we're going to go through America the Beautiful. We're going to go through four of the verses uh, during our our podcast today, and each verse we're going to have a different artist uh, singing it. And this is the first verse. This is the verse that everybody is most familiar with. And so we chose a, a singer that I think everybody is probably very familiar with as well. First verse of America the, America the Beautiful, sung by Ray Charles.
2: Oh, beautiful For spacious skies for amber waves of rain. A purple man yeah, in Above the fruited plain Look here, I'm talking about a man America, you know, God done shed His grace on me. He, 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 he crowned that good,
0: sacred brotherhood from.
1: When you hear that it just gives you a sense of a prayer of a prayer of thanksgiving to god almighty america the beautiful first verse so tom with that background painting a picture of the godliness and and reverence that 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 the the american national park system had a little bit more on uh john muir go ahead please
3: yes in everything he saw muir believed he was witnessing the work and presence of God. He wrote, heaven knows that John the Baptist was not more eager to get all his fellow sinners into the Jordan than I to baptize all of mine in the beauty of God's mountains. In 1870, he wintered in Yosemite and one winter day, hiking in deep snow to a ridgeline in hopes of seeing an avalanche, he instead became part of one. Oh, man. Somehow, Muir survived being swept several thousand feet down a canyon on a cascade of snow and ice. He described his experience as the most spiritual and exhilarating of all the modes of motion I have ever experienced. <laughs> Elijah's flight in a chariot of fire could hardly have been more gloriously exciting. And I just love the way Everything he goes through he he turns to God's uh, word and and record to uh, to find his expression of what he is seeing and experiencing.
1: Well, don't forget he had this was he had he had what over half the Bible memorized so <laughs> that's amazing. anyway, go ahead I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh,
3: this was the beginning of uh, his lifelong dedication to saving and preserving Yosemite and other superlative landscapes for all people to enjoy. His motivation was based on his reverence for God. He considered those landscapes to be the most sacred temples or cathedrals in which to worship God.
1: See now, most of us don't seem to have such a reverence for nature. Perhaps it would help to remind ourselves, the way John Muir did, that you're reading God's other book when you're in nature, and you know, look up to it, revere it, open your heart to the bigness of it and 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 the small intricacies of it as well anyway go ahead tom continue
3: yeah what doing that is is just an exhilarating experience uh muir's fame became famous for his advocacy for yosemite in 1871 ralph waldo emerson made a trip to yosemite to be guided through it by john muir but he encouraged Muir to give up his reclusive life in Yosemite to, to go teach or write. And in reflecting back on that, Muir wrote, Oh, these vast, calm, measureless mountain days, inciting at once to work and rest. Days in whose light everything seems equally divine, opening a thousand windows to show us God. In In 1890, Muir and others were successful in getting Congress to set aside 1500 square miles as Yosemite National Park. But the West was being settled and tamed. Muir was concerned and he began advocating for more parks. In 1903, President Teddy Roosevelt visited Muir in Yosemite and toured and camped with him for three days. On the third night, with President Roosevelt as his captive audience, Muir made a plea for Yosemite wilderness and for setting aside other areas in the United States for park purposes. Muir's main focus was not only the need for forest preservation, but also his concern that the California State Grant of Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove, which had been given by the government years earlier to the state of California, that these, uh, these were surrounded by the new national park and he pleaded that that state land be receded to the United States for inclusion in the heart of the park. In 1906, this resulted in a joint resolution in Congress that accepted the return of the State of California, Yosemite grant back to the United States and putting them into Yosemite National Park. He also began advocating for a government agency to administer the parks. And John Muir died before that happened. He died on Christmas Eve, 1914. Two years later, the National Park Service was created. And, you know, Rick, I was reflecting uh, on, a, on another historical event that happened that Christmas Eve in 1914. That was the famous Christmas truce in World War one mm-hmm. where the British and German soldiers came out of the trenches and spent a night singing Christmas songs in two languages together and playing games and trading cigarettes and, and chocolates and, and photographs and whatever happened that same night John Muir died. That just
1: interesting. It, touch. it, it is. Uh, listen, Tom, we're, we're, well, here is here Tom. Is Tom what, hang hang uh, on one second, John Tom. Muir
3: wrote that uh, Ken Burns.
1: Tom, can you um, hang on one second Picked
3: up in the opening of his PBS series um actually uh, the y- National parks
1: yeah let's so uh, we're, we're running a little bit late on time here so let let's let's forego that particular quote folks that quote will be in Seeker rewind the full edition if you do not subscribe to that uh please do so go to christianquestions.com it's a free service and it gives you the the um the the, the text of what we're talking about, and especially with a program like this. It really is important to, to use that. Um, but again, Tom, we just got to move forward a little bit more. The bottom line is, you know, you, you brought us to the night that he, he dies, and his contributions were really amazing. And when you think about it, they came from his passion and reverence for God and his creation and his determination to allow God's creation to be seen and appreciated forever. That's what drove him. It was allowing God's creation— to be seen and appreciated. God's second book to be read by everyone. So, you know, let's move on. John Muir made that contribution. What what comes next sort of chronologically here?
3: Well, <clears throat> John Muir wasn't the first person, and uh, there's another important contributor. In early 1836, an American painter by the name of Thomas Cole was desperate to create a painting for the annual art exhibit for the National Academy of Design, of which he was a founding member, he decided decided to paint a landscape which he had sketched several years earlier. He had made his reputation and living as a painter of landscapes, but in his own mind, he was first and foremost a religious painter. He dreamed that of the day he could stop painting landscapes and paint just religious scenes. Some of his religious paintings are Christ crowned with the thorns and mocked, hagar in the wilderness and the angels appearing to the shepherds
1: okay so now we've gone from uh from uh john muir to thomas cole Uh, you know those who affect change are those who lived that change before it actually happened and that's such an important thing this is whoops we already did that (laughs) this is what we've been seeing so far
2: that's right rick john muir does make sense But what effect could a religious painter have on our national park system?
0: Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. So up to
1: this point we are clearly unfolding a connection in american history that many seem to want to bury and forget and that is the connection between a profound reverence for god almighty and many important decisions and actions of american national significance so let's remind ourselves of the the deep truthful connection between god and the building of America. And today we're focusing on that connection in a very, very different kind of way, in a way that most of us don't even know exists, and that is uh, in relation to uh, America's national parks. Jonathan, a quick announcement here?
2: Yeah, uh, we do have one, Rick, and you wanted to start it off, didn't yes, you? Yes,
1: that's right. We, uh, a Christian Questions update reminder, our media production team has helped us create a brand new video to tell the history of how Christian Questions began leading up to where we are today.
2: You can see this new video, CQ, How It Began, on the right sidebar of our website, christianquestions.com. And if you're on your mobile phone, it'll be at the bottom of the video section due to the mobile formatting. Rick, this video replaces our older behind-the-scenes video with more comprehensive insider look told through your eyes and mine. It goes back to how we started Christian Questions in 1998 and how our team of supporters grew, how new people came into our lives over the years to help build and build and build. What you hear now was not how it was back then, even 10 years ago, let alone almost 20 years ago, as we took to the mics with a lot less confidence on the first morning back in 1998.
1: <laughs> and you got to check out that video at ChristianQuestions.com, and especially our description of that first broadcast. It really <laughs> was quite something. And, you know, that's a, such a short history time, and, and Tom Tom Gilbert is here, our guest with us, talking about the American national park system and the long history of developing a reverence for God as a national statement of the United States of America, so we were just talking about this uh, this painter. Um, d- 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 what was his name? The painter Mr. Thomas Cole. Thomas Cole. Thomas. I knew got Cole, but I can. So so continue with the landscape uh, or, or or the 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 religious painter turned landscape painter.
3: Well, the landscape that Cole produced for the exhibition, which he formally titled view from Mount Holyoke, Northampton, Massachusetts after a thunderstorm, and is more popularly called the Oxbow, was a sensation at the show, having such an effect on the artistic world that it launched what has become known as the Hudson River School of Landscape Painters. That same year, he wrote an essay in the, that was published in the American Monthly Magazine, an essay on American scenery in which he laid out his perspectives on how the essential preservation of wild scenery is to the well-being of mankind and how important it was for his fellow landscape painters to reveal God's glory hidden in nature to their materialistic countrymen. This is what he said in his essay. The world's purpose has not been in vain. The good, the enlightened of all ages and nations have found pleasure and consolation in the beauty of the rural earth. Prophets of old retired into the solitudes of nature to wait the inspiration from heaven. It was on Mount Horeb that Elijah witnessed the mighty wind, the earthquake and the fire and heard the the still small voice. That voice is yet heard among the mountains. St. John preached in the desert. The wilderness is yet a fitting place to speak to God. Nature has spread for us a rich and delightful banquet. Shall we turn from it? We are still in Eden. The wall that shuts us out of the garden is our own ignorance and folly.
1: Man, I'm telling you when you see the the, the, the sacredness of these these men in their thinking in, in in the writings and the paintings that Cole produced, there's a remarkable sense of the of the all inclusiveness that God's creation is meant to have on humanity. He seems to label the spirituality of God's creation as kind of like a great equalizer of men before God. Doesn't matter who you are. Go into nature and be equalized before God. Honor and reverence him. This, this, this is amazing. These are the little things in history, folks, that most of us never know, and that's why the likes of Tom Gilbert has to come along and give us an education. Let, let's continue, Tom.
3: Like nearly everyone else raised in New England, Thomas Cole was raised in a congregational church community. With its Calvinist roots, one might think that the austere teachings of John Calvin would have taught him to disregard the things of earth and focus on the things of heaven. But in painting the oxbow, Thomas Cole inserted into his landscape religious elements pointing to the awesomeness of God as creator. So he he combined the landscapes with his desire to paint religious messages. And this perspective was not at all at variance with what John Calvin taught. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin wrote that we know the most perfect way of seeking God is for us to contemplate him in his works whereby he rendered himself near and familiar to us and in some manner communicates himself. He wrote in another place, In a preface to a French translation of the New Testament prepared by his cousin, this is what Calvin said. It is evident that all creatures, from those in the firmament to those which are in the center of the earth, are able to act as witnesses and messengers of his glory to all men, to draw them to seek God, and after having found him, to meditate upon him and to render him the homage befitting his dignity as so good, so mighty, so wise a Lord who is eternal. Yea, they are even capable of aiding every man where he is in his quest. For the little birds that sing, sing of God. The beasts clamor for him. The elements dread him. The mountains echo him. The fountains and flowing waters cast their glances at him. And the grass and flowers laugh before him. You know, even the iconic Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. (laughs) It's a classic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not that I embrace
1: it necessarily. (laughs) Me neither. But
3: he too, he too saw God's glory exhibited in the natural world and drew inspiration from it. This is what he wrote. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, in moon and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time. And so in daytime, spent much time in viewing the clouds and skies to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice my contemplations of the creator and redeemer. He frequently went to the woods and fields to meditate and pray alone.
1: And let, let's do that again by way of music. Let's go to the second verse of America the Beautiful. And Jonathan, before we start this, verse two is sung by Twyla Paris. but just read the lyrics just so our listeners get a sense of the lyrics before they hear them.
2: Oh, beautiful for pilgrim feet, whose stern, impassioned stress, a thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness. America, America, God mend thine ever flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control; thy liberty in law.
1: All right, Twyla Paris. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty and law. Boy, have we lost that in, in our country now. But do, you know, at the time that this was written, it was at the same time that Tom Gilbert is giving us this, this walkthrough on the American national parks. There was reverence for God shown in nature. So, Tom, why don't you wrap up a little bit on this uh, Calvinist tradition, and then we'll move on to the next part.
3: Okay, the, the Calvinist tradition also placed high value on stewardship of all that one possessed. In his commentary on Genesis, Calvin stated, "'Let him who possesses a field "'so partake of its yearly fruits "'that he may not suffer the ground to be injured "'by his negligence, but let him endeavor "'to hand it down to posterity as he received it, "'or even better, cultivated. Let "'Let everyone regard himself as a steward of God, in all things which he possesses. This is similar to a passage
1: in Leviticus. And Jonathan, why don't we go to that Leviticus 25:23?
2: Your land must not be sold on a permanent basis because you do not own it. It belongs to God, and you are like foreigners who are allowed to make use of it.
1: Yeah, you're right. There's an echo there. <laughs> go ahead, Tom.
3: As the seeds of the conservation movement were sprouting in the Calvinist congregational church and town meeting culture of New England, landscape painters did their part to illustrate God's handiwork and fire the imaginations of the American people. Those who explored the expanding frontiers of the nation took landscape painters with them. Artists like Albert Bierstadt, and Thomas Moran gave the American people a glimpse of the amazing natural grandeur that lay west of the Mississippi. Early leaders of the conservation movement were New Englanders brought up in the congregational churches and learning the Calvinist values of reverence for the creation and stewardship of all that God has given us. People like George Perkins Marsh, who wrote Man and Nature in 1864, Another Frederick Billings and Frederick Law Olmsted, all came from New England towns. These men and others of their generation formulated a powerful conservation ideology for agricultural improvement, forest conservation and parks and vigorously worked to realize their vision of a righteous, moral and democratic society.
1: And I might add godly in there. I mean, the whole point was to be godly in our reverence here. This really gives a sense of the iconic power of a painting of a church surrounded by the beauty of creation. You know, from New England, that's a very famous look, a very famous kind of a landscape. Seeing such depictions must have given people a sense of awe for God as they perhaps felt his total presence on that canvas. Because remember, at that time, you didn't have Instagram. You had a painting, and those paintings were rare. And when you saw them, you absorbed them because they showed you something that you maybe didn't naturally see. So it really is amazing to see how the message was sent across the country through things like paintings. Go ahead, Tom. Let's yes, and,
3: those, and those paintings got published in the periodicals of the day, and that's how the, 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 the grandeur represented in those paintings came to the American people. Frederick Law Olmsted eventually became the foremost landscape architect and park planner of his day. In 1850, he set sail for Old England, an intended walking tour of England and Scotland to make notes on agricultural practices for articles in the Horticulturalist magazine here in the United States. However, after disembarking in Liverpool, he was directed to visit a new public park in Birkenhead, the first anywhere in the world that had been developed with public funds. He was fascinated with its playgrounds, winding paths, Little Lake, and the presence of people of all classes and ages. He reported, five minutes of admiration and a few more spent in studying the manner in which art had been employed to obtain from nature so much beauty. And I was ready to admit that in democratic America, there was nothing to be thought of as comparable with this people's garden. This was 22 years before Yellowstone National Park. Okay. Seven seven years later in 1857, without any experience or training, he found himself in charge as the landscape architect for New York Central Park. In the plan produced for the park, Olmsted and his associate Calvert Vaugh consciously translated the Hudson River School painters' principles into an actual landscape.
1: Oh, that's fascinating.
3: Though New Englanders like Olmsted, through New Englanders like Olmsted, the landscape values emanating from New England towns and churches manifested themselves in state and national parks. When Yosemite was set aside initially as a California state park in 1864, Olmsted was named the head of the Yosemite Commission.
1: Some Somehow these days, we don't think so much about how art not only reflects life, but can truly define life's direction as well. And this seems to be another angle of God's second book, God's other book, the ability to capture God's nature on a canvas and deliver it to those who cannot see the real thing, and then it inspires them to action. So God's second book has this ability to be passed on from one to another, even if you can't be in the middle of it who's next? Tom, the the research on this is unbelievable in putting all of these people together. So who's next in the list?
3: Well, Sarah Jane Clark Lippincott, a great-granddaughter of the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards and editor of the children's magazine The Little Pilgrim, wrote an account of the pilgrimage she and fellow travelers made in 1872 to the sacred Sierra. She wrote. Yosemite was the temple of nature's ancient worship with thunderous cataracts for organs and silver cascades for choirs and wreathing clouds of spray for perpetual incense and rocks 3,000 feet high for altars. Truly enraptured by the beauty of Yosemite. And these writings, along with those paintings, took this message to the American people.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Connecticut Valley Congregational Congregationalists continued to lead the American parks movement. Ferdinand Hayden and Cornelius Hedges of Westfield, Massachusetts were the principal proponents of Yellowstone National Park established by Congress in 1872. George Bird Grinnell, a Yale graduate and grandson of a Massachusetts Congregational Minister, led the creation of Glacier National Park in 1910. Stephen Ting Mather, A deeply religious man and descendant of several Connecticut congregational ministers was the driving force behind the creation of the National Park Service. And the principal author of the bill passed in 1916 creating the National Park Service was Frederick Law Olmstead, Jr.
1: Okay, so you can see the progression and all of the individuals involved, and it's all godly. Jonathan, go, go ahead. Yeah, Tom has really put together some amazing photography and when
2: you subscribe to CQ Rewind you are gonna see breathtaking scenery that you've never seen before. It's a must. It it just is it takes your breath away. It really does. It
1: does. And CQ Rewind is a free service. And if for some reason you don't like it, you click a button and you can opt out and that's the end of it. So ChristianQuestions.com or you can find it on your Christian Questions app on your phone. And if you don't have the app on your phone, what are you waiting for there too? I mean, come on. All right, so look, with all of this powerful and convicted support from Christians, we need to shake this whole thing out just a little bit further.
2: Sure. More work to do. This all makes us wonder, what does the natural world reveal to us about God's natural
0: laws? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ Contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly, but we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy.
1: So, you know, we sit in a unique spot looking at all of this American history 100 to 150 years later. We see the power of the godly beliefs and the actions of the people that we're talking about. We also see an alarming lack of godly beliefs surrounding us today. Let's take a few minutes and remind our present-day society of the miracles of God's creation that we now call science. You know, contrary to popular opinion, believing in God is not denying science. Believing in God is actually verifying science because science shows us how things work and it shows us how deeply important the Creator is. So, Tom, what does the natural world reveal to us about God's natural laws?
3: Rick, I think each person answers this question for him or herself. I think the expressions I've shared from various people reflected their very individually personal experience with the natural creation around them. But we can look at some of these things. For instance, the natural world reveals God's love, care, and provision for us and for all of his creatures. God's love for his creatures has shown that in forming the earth, He provided in it all that his creatures would need to sustain life, develop, and grow. Earth teems with life, sustained by very complex systems that provide light, heat, air, water, and food, all in exquisite balance. It shows evidence of having been specially built to accommodate living things comfortably like a magnificent house.
1: Okay, all right, so let's break it down. Let's look at some very specific examples of what God, what nature's, what the natural world reveals.
3: Well, let's consider light and heat. Among the many precise conditions vital to life is the amount of light and heat received from the sun. The earth gets, we know, only a small fraction of the sun's energy, but it is just the right amount to sustain life. This is because the Earth is just the right distance from the Sun, an average of 93 million miles. And as it orbits the Sun once a year, the Earth travels at a speed of about 66,000 miles per hour. That speed is just right to offset the gravitational pull of the Sun and keep Earth at the proper distance. In addition, the Earth consistently makes a complete rotation on its axis every 24 hours. This provides regular periods of light and darkness. But what if the Earth rotated on its axis, say, only once a year? Uh, Venus rotates only once every 243 Earth days.
1: Oh, boy. I wouldn't be very old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's
3: no life on Venus either. So if, if the Earth did that, you know, one side would be very, very hot, you know, like a furnace-like desert, and the other side would become a sub-zero wasteland. Uh, few if any, living things could exist in those circumstances.
1: So, okay, so we have light and heat in just the right amounts, and the life that they produce teems with all kinds of potential. God is light. That's what the scriptures say. And in so being we can see his power as life-giver and Sustainer. So that's the example of light and heat. Give us another example, Tom
3: Well, let's consider the atmosphere around the earth It also factors into maintaining the balance of radiant heat received from the Sun It also has many beautifully designed features. It has a perfect balance of the gases Too much oxygen would be toxic to us. Lightning causes the nitrogen in the air to form compounds with oxygen, which then fertilize our soil when it comes to Earth in rain. The ozone layer filters out harmful radiation from the sun. The atmosphere also shields the Earth from meteors. Generally, they burn up as they pass through the atmosphere. The atmosphere insulates the Earth, retaining the warmth and protecting us from the cold of space. When was the last time you thought about all these purposes which the atmosphere plays and about how carefully God prepared your earthly habitation?
1: You know, Tom, i got to be honest with you. You asked that question, and I read some of your notes ahead of time, and I hadn't thought about it much at all until I read your notes, and I thought, you know, maybe I better just pause a moment and look up and look around. And literally, after reading that, I went outside and just stopped everything and looked at the trees and looked at the sky and said— my God, you are incredible, so so great and so often awesome. We just need to revere his greatness.
3: Yeah, most of us appreciate the atmosphere on a daily basis by the beauty it provides in sunrises, sunsets, cloud patterns, moonlit nights, starry skies. But think of it. God not, not only made the atmosphere functional, but he also made it to be beautiful so that we can enjoy it.
1: So, the interesting thing about light and heat in the atmosphere, they're not the physical environment that you've been talking about throughout this whole podcast, um, that, you know, and we talk about with such godly inspiration, but light and heat and atmosphere feed and nurture that environment. So, we can't have the incredible beauty that you have talked about the preservation of without the light and the heat in the atmosphere. I mean, it's just, you know, that's the glory of God. Just, that's the glory of God's second book.
3: Indeed it is. If you thought for a minute about the mansions we read about in the scriptures that have been prepared for the faithful overcomers of this Christian age, can you imagine how marvelously they have been prepared? Think about what a blessing the perfected earth will be to the restored human race in God's kingdom and how it will bring forth praise and reverence
1: for the Creator. So let's it's going pa- to be amazing. It is, it is. And let's pause another moment for that praise and reverence for the Creator by looking at the anthem, America the Beautiful. And Jonathan, we're going to be listening to verse 3 sung by Annie Carto, but just read us the, the, uh, the words of verse three first.
2: first. Oh, o beautiful, for heroes provide in liberating strife, who more than self their country loved, and mercy more than life. America, America, may God thy gold refine till all success be nobleness and every gain divine.
1: Every gain divine. I mean, talk about honoring God.
2: Oh, beautiful for heroes put in this (laughs) Oh, <laughs>
1: gives you such a sense of reverence. May God thy gold refine. It was all about God. So, our guest uh, for this podcast is Tom Gilbert. He's walking us through the establishment of the American National Parks and how it was they were established with such a godly reverence for the creation. And, Tom, we're taking a few minutes out in this segment to go through some of the aspects of creation that show us God's greatness. We've talked about light and heat and atmosphere. Let's talk about water for a few minutes. Go ahead.
3: You know, Rick, water is truly amazing, It's the most abundant substance on earth and has many properties essential for life. To me, its most amazing property is that it occurs as a solid, liquid, and gas all within earth's normal temperature range. Think of what this has meant to the technological progress of civilization in terms of water power, water transportation, steam power, food preservation, and so forth. It's amazing. Water will dissolve more substances than any other liquid and consequently all living things are dependent on it to dissolve the substances on which they feed. Water is also extraordinary in the way that it freezes. As water in lakes and seas cools, it becomes heavier and sinks. This forces the lighter, warmer water to rise to the top. Yet as water approaches the freezing point, this process reverses. The colder water now becomes lighter and rises. When it freezes into ice, it floats. The ice then acts as an insulator and keeps the deeper waters underneath from freezing, thus protecting aquatic life. Without this unique quality, every winter more and more ice would sink to the bottom where the sun's rays could not melt at the following summer. And soon much of the water in rivers, lakes, and oceans would become solid ice. All aquatic life would perish. The earth would turn into an icy planet that would be inhospitable to all life. This, to me, speaks loudly about intelligent design, the work of a creator to make a substance like that.
1: You know, it's a really, really amazing thing that you just just reiterated. And it's it's incredibly sad that our society is kept from marveling at such things. I mean, you know, we've got to learn just how to marvel and say, that's incredible. To marvel at them would be to laud their intricate and supernatural design, and that would lead people down the horrifying road of acknowledging that there is great intelligence out there beyond our scope. Heaven forbid we allow people to do that. Folks, look at what we're missing by not being in awe of God Almighty, in awe of his creation, of the complexity and of its beauty on all of these different levels. Summarize this for us, Tom.
3: Well, to me, the natural world around us proclaims God's existence and his love, care, and provision for his human creation and all other living parts of the earth how perfectly he prepared it for us. If you were a parent and had no limitation on resources, think of how well you would design and build a house for your son or your daughter and their family to live in, how much care and love you would put into it. That is what God has put into creating the earth.
1: And, and to, the, to the natural landscape that we are focusing on uh, in this podcast. We've looked at just a few things that teach us what the natural world reveals. So based on this uncovering of what's already there, Okay, based on what the world reveals, what does the natural world teach us? Tom, go ahead. What?
3: One of the things that it teaches us is that there are natural consequences for both good and bad decisions and actions. God has designed the world so that there is a system of checks and balances called natural consequences. It works in the physical world as well as in human society. Sometimes things appear to be out of balance generally because man, through his ingenuity, manages to delay or temporarily avert the natural consequences of his actions. But there comes a time when consequences cannot be denied their lawful operation. So the natural world shows that there is a justice to God's laws and system. The system of natural consequences teaches or should teach discipline, accepting the reality of the way things work, and working with rather than against the laws of the universe. By having a system of, that operates by laws, God has designed mankind's habitation in a way that is a self-teaching system, teaching by experience. The natural consequences are occurring in the earth today. Human activity is adversely affecting earth's natural systems, overloading them beyond their ability to restore themselves. Ignorance and greed have led to water pollution, air pollution, and toxic chemicals in the food chain. While advances were made in this country in the 1960s and 1970s to regulate human activity and improve the quality of the environment, political forces today are worried to roll back the regulations designed to protect our air and our water. Consequences will result There is no denying it. But even within the human family, Rick, natural consequences should teach us the better ways of living because hatred breeds hatred. Forgiving leads to forgiving. Kindness breeds kindness. And love produces loving responses.
1: Jonathan?
2: Yeah, I was thinking, Tom, um, mankind does make a mess of things because of selfishness and greed, as you mentioned. But God is the creator of eternity, and we know that the kingdom that he's promised is going to bring a balance back, no matter how bad mankind messes things up. Would you
3: agree with that? Well, I would, and I I believe that in God's kingdom, mankind will be tasked with cleaning up the messes that they have created under the direction of God and his Christ. Accountability.
1: Yep. Absolutely. So, so Jonathan, let's go on to a, a scripture kind of verifying, uh, testifying the, the natural consequences of human behavior.
2: Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap.
1: All right, so, uh, look, folks, we can not only be uh, inspired by the glorious natural environment we're surrounded with, we can if we pay attention, learn lessons on the value of life as well. Nature teaches us all of those things. <clears throat> Excuse me, I just want to take a moment here. And Tom, just just get off of the sort of the teaching aspect of things for a moment. You've spent your working lifetime working for the National Park System and literally bla- literally blazing trails through nature so that humankind can, can enjoy them. In terms of the national park system, how many, how many national parks are there?
3: Well, the, the official count right now is 417. Wow. That includes, yep. that includes national parks, which are the, the big areas, but it also includes national monuments, seashores like Cape Cod, uh, the national historic sites, all those different categories.
1: 417 okay that's a lot now go ahead you
3: have a favorite tom uh it's really hard i've been to about 250 of those units wow but i think my favorite one to visit is great smoky mountain national park because of not only the natural beauty but an area there called cades cove which uh, preserves the story of pioneer life in the mountains
1: all right you've been around there brother haven't you yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and what, what you can see, folks, what it's done, Tom, what it's done for you is it has, obviously, it has increased and driven your faith uh, because you're, you're, you're spending your time preserving what God made. That's just such a cool thing.
3: And every one of these places I go to, my favorite stories to look into is the stories of the people that work to bring about their setting aside to be preserved and enjoyed by the American people. Those stories, those human stories are what really turned me on.
1: There you go. So, folks, you know, it really, it, this, this is a story that's really developing. This makes you wonder, what else did God hide in plain sight? Let's look at that, Rick. The natural
2: world reveals and teaches. What then does it display? What does
0: it simply show us? we're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast cq team of contributors we want to hear from you our listeners for more contribution to our conversations talk to us at christianquestions.com or message us through the christian questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air let's continue working through our topic with all our tools we're reviewing the evidence now let's put it together
1: you know, it really is kind of cool to be reviewing God's magnificent natural creation, his second book, and not just being in awe of it, but also applying it as a powerful teaching tool as well. Think of it as an illustrated educational book. We have read what it reveals and teaches. Now, let's take some time and look at the pictures. Now, I know this is a podcast and there aren't pictures, so you're going to use your imagination a little bit, but let's look at the pictures of special guest Tom Gilbert, uh, who has spent his working lifetime In the preservation of the beauty of God's creation uh, is walking us through several aspects of not only the national park system being founded on godly principles by godly people who wanted to show the magnificence of God to America, but showing us the lessons that we can learn from, from nature. We've seen nature reveal things and nature teach things. So the natural world, Tom, also displays different things. So give us a little bit of a sense of what the natural world displays to us
3: i think one of the things when we when we especially when we look up at the sky or the heavens we get an idea of the magnitude of god and his love for order and organization Uh, who who hasn't tried to contemplate how big is the universe yeah well our milky way galaxy contains over 100 billion stars the diameter of our galaxy span so vast a distance that if you could travel as fast as the speed of light, it would take you a 100,000 years to cross just our galaxy. Our Milky Way galaxy is 600 quadrillion miles in diameter. The average distance between stars within the galaxy is said to be about six light years or 36 trillion miles. That's crazy numbers. 100 billion. There are so many galaxies that have been detected that it is said that they are about as common as blades of grass in a meadow. About 10 billion galaxies are in the observable universe. And these awesome galaxies are not scattered scattered haphazardly in space. Instead, they are usually arranged in definite groups called clusters, like grapes in a bunch. The Milky Way galaxy, for example, is part of a cluster of about 20 galaxies. There is even evidence that the clusters themselves are arranged in superclusters like bunches of grapes on a vine. Consider the order of our solar system. The planets move about the sun with such precision that astronomers can accurately predict where they will be at any time in the future and now with computers any time in the past. Hmm. Dr. Werner von Braun said, "The natural laws of the universe are so precise that we have no difficulty building a spaceship to fly to the moon and can time the flight with the precision of a fraction of a second. These laws must have been set by somebody.
1: Wow. With such massive magnitude on display, it can be absolutely overwhelming. Jonathan, Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4.
2: When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man? that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him.
1: It is absolutely overwhelming. Go ahead, Tom, continue.
3: You know, our entire experience in life teaches us that everything organized must have an organizer. So when we consider the magnitude of God in these things, we see an organizer. Another thing to consider is in some of the smallest features of his creation. Consider photosynthesis. The synthesis of chemical compounds with the aid of radiant heat and light, especially the formation of carbohydrates in the chlorophyll-containing tissues of plants exposed to light. This is nature's food-producing process. It takes place in tiny cell bodies called chloroplasts. They are so small that 400,000 of them could fit on the period at the end of a sentence. (laughs) Within these tiny cell bodies, there are about 70 separate chemical reactions that take place in photosynthesis. Everything works together in the right order to produce the basic organic building blocks of our world. Did it just start happening? Or did someone design it?
1: Oh, I know the answer. Pick me. I know. <laughs> I mean, look. See, see look. As, as we look at the pictures on display in this book, this second book of God called The Natural Creation, we can be inspired by things so large and far away they defy imagination. And we can also be inspired by things so small and precise that they defy comprehension. But the bottom line, the the the, the commonality between all of them, they are all god's creation this is what the natural world um, shows us and and reveals to us so let's continue with what the natural world shows us tom go ahead something else i mean you're on such a roll go ahead
3: (laughs) okay well another thing that the natural world shows us is that god appreciates his creatures working together for the common good in the natural creation we recognize what is known as symbiosis the intimate living together of two dissimilar organisms in a mutually beneficial relationship. Certain plants and animals need each other to exist. For example, stinging ants live in the hollow thorns of acacia trees. They keep leaf eating insects off the tree and they cut up and kill vines that try to climb up on the tree. The tree secretes a sugary fluid that the ants relish and it also produces small false fruit which serve as food for the ants. We might ask the question, did the ant first protect the tree and then the tree rewarded it with the fruit? (laughs) Or did the tree make a fruit for the ant and then the ant thanked it with protection? Or did it all chance to happen at once? I think it loudly displays the intelligence of a grand designer.
1: Folks, pause and just let yourself absorb the incredible beauty of nature, all to the glory of God. Go ahead.
3: You know, we see other relationships like this in the fact that insects uh, pollinate flowers of plants, and and uh, they're absolutely essential. And one of the crises in in the environment today is the loss of, of the honeybees and the pollination, that uh, role that they play. And it, it could become catastrophic in our agricultural world. So the natural world teaches me that God values partnerships, working together, helping one another. Our God intended it to work within uh, within Christianity as well.
1: And and let's go to a
3: scripture,
1: Jonathan. Let's go to a scripture on that. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three and four.
2: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by
1: God. So you're right, Tom, the the, the spiritual creation from, drawn from humanity is, is is drawn together with that symbiosis in mind as well, working together, building one another up. We, we, we've seen God's amazing book of natural creation reveal, teach, display, and show. The most amazing part of this book is that it's available for anyone who would choose to read and observe it. All we have to do is look, experience, and be humble enough to learn. And, you know, with the Internet, even if you're in the middle of a city, you can look, you can experience, you can get a sense of the incredible beauty of nature, just the incredible beauty of nature. So let's pause here just for a moment. Let's go back to uh, America the Beautiful, one more verse. This will be the, the last verse that we will touch on. This is verse four. This will be sung by Lee Greenwood. But Jonathan, first, uh, read the words for us, please.
2: Oh, beautiful for a patriot dream that sees beyond the years. Thine alabaster cities gleam, undimmed by human tears. America, America, God shed His grace on thee, and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea.
1: Every verse of this, this, this song, this hymn, is about giving praise and honor to God. <laughs> Folks, if you don't walk away from this with a sense of godliness and awe, you're not listening. Go ahead, Jonathan.
2: Uh, Tom, my son, after he graduated high school, went with his two best friends uh, for a a major six-week trip to all these national parks. They went to Garden of the Gods, Yellowstone, Zion, Redwood, Sequoia, the Grand Tetons, Grand Canyon, and Yosemite. And what a life! experience that these three young men had. It it was amazing. And his observation was, by far, Zion was my favorite park. He
3: was blown away by it.
1: And you've been to Zion National Park, right, Tom?
3: I have been several times. I love the fact that all of the uh, rock formations are biblical, (laughs) like the Three Patriarchs and the Great White Throne and and things like that. They're all biblically named.
1: There's a man who knows his national parks, folks. Uh, Tom Gilbert is our special guest today with this podcast, giving us a sense of America from a very different perspective, from the perspective of nature in America. And the reason that America's national parks exist is because those individuals who saw reverence for God wanted to preserve it for all time. Uh, Tom, one last story for us, because we're starting to get shy on time here.
3: Yeah, I think one last story bears mentioning, you know, the influence of one life upon another is wonderfully demonstrated in the story behind the establishment of Rocky Mountain National Park. Enos Mills was born in Kansas in 1870. At age 14, he left his family and moved to Colorado, established a homestead near Long's Peak, south of present-day Estes Park Colorado. The next year at age 15 he climbed the 14,255 foot peak by himself. <laughs> During his life he climbed the mountain himself 40 times by himself and nearly time, hundred times guiding groups of others. Well in 1889 he had a chance, <laughs> and I almost cringe at saying chance, he had a chance encounter with John Muir on a beach in San Francisco. It changed the direction of his life. He dedicated himself to campaigning for the protection of outstanding natural landscapes, writing and lecturing to build public support. His speeches focused on the life cycle of trees, forestry practices, the lives of wildlife and the pres- preservation of natural lands. In his speeches and writings, he encouraged people of all ages to get outside to appreciate the natural world. He was the driving force behind the creation of Rocky Mountain National Park in 1915.
1: And so so he's known as the father of that park then? Yes. And did you want to just do one quick quote from him?
3: Uh, Well, one of his notable statements was that without parks and outdoor life, all that is best in civilization will be smothered. Mm -hmm. To save ourselves, to prevent our perishing, to enable us to live at our best and happiest, parks are necessary. Within national parks is room, glorious room, room in which to find ourselves, in which to think and hope, to dream and plan, to rest and
1: resolve. What an incredible difference the world was in the world just 130 years ago. I mean, this is a young man leaving his home at age 14. At age 14, leaving his home, going out entirely on his own. At age 15, climbing this 14,000-foot peak by himself, uh, following his passion. We have lost the ability to follow our passions. Uh, uh, Tom, and a quote here you've got written from uh, Henry David Thoreau.
3: Yes, he said, we need the tonic of wilderness to wade sometimes in the marshes where the bittern and the meadow hen lurk, to smell the whispering sedge where only some wilder and more terry fowl builds her nest and the mink crawls with its belly close to the ground. We can never have enough of nature in wilderness is the preservation of the world. You know, I think the energizing thing about these stories of those who had a role in launching conservation and wilderness preservation and national parks in America, is their acknowledgement of the sacred and divine in those places, their continuing sense of wonderment and excitement over the mysteries yet to be discovered and understood. John Muir expressed it this way. This is my last quote. Okay. I used to envy the father of our race, dwelling as he did in contact with the new made fields and the plants of Eden but i do not i do so no more because i have discovered that i also live in creation's dawn the morning stars still sing together and the world not yet half made becomes more beautiful every day
1: all right tom we are nearly out of time here this has been an incredible journey to look at the history of the national parks, the history of the people that put them together, and your attention to the detail, all of this to the honor of God. Give us just a a quick conclusion to our our conversation today.
3: Well, one other quote from a, a current author who lives in Alaska, and he says, Alaska shows us America's treasures the way God intended them to be because they are so untouched by humans. And he makes an interesting observation on patriotism. He says, I have come to believe that the rapidly growing community of citizens who care deeply about our country's natural heritage, who are working to celebrate, sustain and protect this heritage, should be regarded as patriots for the American land. I, I really like that idea that patriotism is preserving what God has given us. And that should be part of our patriotic ethic. The other point is, Coming back to the scripture in uh, Romans one twenty, that we can protect the land, the air, the water, all these things, because in protecting them, we protect the witness they give us of God the Creator and the lessons that are there for us.
1: Tom, thanks so much. I cannot even begin to explain to you how important this, this hour and a half has been to go through the beauty of creation, the work that so many people did in the name of God to preserve creation, and the responsibility that we as individuals have to laud that work, laud that creation, look heavenward, and say thank you, God, for everything you've given us. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Folks...
3: Glad to be with you.
1: Folks, don't forget to check out our new CQ How It All Began video. Find out more background on Jonathan and I, our passion for the gospel, and how this all came together. And continues to come together every week with our great team of contributors. See the history video now on the right sidebar of ChristianQuestions.com. Folks, we'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, God's nature speaks volumes. Are you listening? Think about it.